Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. If you guys want to go ahead and have a seat, we're going to get started or get back into starting. Um, I'm really excited to be able to share with you guys uh, this morning, and I feel like I need to give a disclaimer. I've been feeling a little weepy uh, this morning, and uh, seriously, um, I think it's uh, in, in, a little, in a couple months, it will be 10 years since my wife and I moved to this area to be closer to her family, and uh, shortly after moving, we hung out with a family that had just moved to plant a church, and it was the second time he'd had people over to his house, and uh, we had just gotten out of a really unhealthy, kind of toxic church plant environment, so I was not really interested, but uh, Brian said all the right things, and uh, here it is. Um, Over the last 10 years, uh, this place has uh, sheltered our family as we've had three kids, and uh, we've gone through a lot of deaths and entered into full-time ministry and uh, this morning, as I was looking around at uh, Brian, who's been my pastor, and uh, Bob, who's recently come on and really spoken into my life, and David, who's really humbly led our church in figuring out what musical worship should look like here, and uh, Ryan and the other elders that I get to serve alongside, and then when I look out here, people that I've known for years and years, and uh, this is a really safe place. And that's rare, unfortunately. And so, um, if you're visiting, this is not like a paid advertisement. This is just, <laughs> this is just a testimony, and this is a special place. And so, um, it's a real honor uh, to be here. Uh, if you brought a Bible, or if you have an app on your phone or whatever, uh, we're going to be camping out in John chapter 13, the Gospel of John chapter 13, and is... Um, as Ryan mentioned, we're talking about love this morning. I know I missed Valentine's Day. It was last Sunday, but I was in San Antonio, Texas, and so this is a, a makeup Valentine's sermon. Uh, so we're going to be in John chapter 13, and as you're turning or opening your app, um, the passage we're looking at, the context is this is uh, really the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. And it's the last evening before he's arrested. And so he's with his disciples, his followers, and uh, they're participating in, in what is called the Passover Supper. And that, that's a tradition, a yearly festival that the, uh, the Jewish people had to remember when God rescued them from Egypt. When God allowed them, as they put blood of a spotless lamb... On their doorposts, death passed over their homes, and then they were rescued out of slavery. And so that's the context of Jesus' last evening with his disciples as he is spending some really special time with him. And so I want to read, um, starting in um, verse 34 of chapter 13, hear the word of the Lord. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Let's pray. Father, as we talk this morning about a commandment that's not new to us, but is... um, is sometimes so difficult to live out in its simplicity. I ask that you would uh, 
you would not allow us to rush past the stories we're so familiar with or the commands that we could probably state by heart, but we would slow down and really listen to what you mean when you tell us to love one another and what it means that the world outside of this safe place would know us by that love. Amen. Media not found. Hold on. There we go. I love you. You are the, the epitome of everything I have ever looked for in another human being. Love is, is too weak a word for I, I love you. You know, I loathe you. I, I love you. I sort of feel like I'm on drugs when I'm with you. Not that I do drugs, unless you do drugs, in which case I do drugs all the time. <laughs> There's only one place in the world I call home, and it's because you're there. I'd feel better sitting outside your apartment on the curb than any other place I can think of or imagine. I'm not waking up another morning without being able to look at you next to me. I would rather share one lifetime with you than face all the ages of this world alone. Can't you see what I'm trying to tell you? I love you. Very much. More than love with you. I love you. Like a sickness. And it's cure together. I love you. Ditto. I should have told you every day from the moment I met you. You complete me. Teodoro Maria. I love you, chicken. I love you, honey bunny. I think that's the only thing I've ever been really sure of in my entire life. You are the woman that I want. How many more times do I have to say it? One more time would be nice. You have bewitched me, body and soul. Whatever I am, I'm yours. I am so in love with you. You're the only one for me. I'm not a smart man. I know what love is. Love is never having to say you're sorry. Love is a many splendid thing. What? Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. Some people search all their life for this and never find it. I think this happens every day. I love you, dream woman. What do I have to do to prove it to you? Huh? You want the moon? You want me to renounce my throne? The wooing, the spooning, I am all. Yeah. Because when you find the one, you never give up. Well, I have for one. You, I love you. I love you. I love you. I've loved you more than any woman's ever loved a rabbit. I love you more than anyone has ever loved. I love you more than my life. I love you more than bad music and cookie making. What's up, Kitty? I made up my mind you were the only woman for me. I've loved you since the first day I met you, and I'll never stop. I love you always. Until your heart stops beating. Until the skies turn cold. Forever. I've never felt that before. I love you. Can't believe how many times I'm saying I love you. Because I came alive when I met you. And there's only one person that makes me feel like I can fly. So I will wait forever for you, okay? I will wait the rest of my life. I want all of you forever. You and me, every day. <laughs> I love you. 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 I'll always have. I always will. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. Just You had me at hello. 
I love the combination of laughter and oh that that elicits. Um, so, so what we have here is a bit of a tension, because what we have is 2,000 years ago, Jesus with his disciples on his last evening with them, saying, here's a new commandment. This is a new commandment. This is in addition to the law that, that you've been practicing. This is a new commandment. You are to love one another. And the world outside of this room is going to know you by that love. And 2,000 years later, in 2016, the most consistent and most persistent and loudest commentary on what love is comes from Hollywood. Almost every blockbuster movie at some point makes some sort of statement about what love is. And its difference from what Christ is espousing is subtle enough that it can elicit a lot of, in the midst of the laughter. But the reality is if you really look at what Hollywood says about love at its core, it is a self-focused and a self-actualizing love. You are the one I want. You complete me. Ultimately, when you dig down to the bottom of it, the love of Hollywood, which is the love of our country, is a love that is about me It is a love about my self-actualization. It couldn't be as far, it couldn't be any further from what Jesus is is commanding his disciples and commanding us by extension. So what I want to do very briefly this morning is look at three postures of love that Jesus took in those last days of his life for us and also for an example to us of what he meant when he charged his disciples in their last meal together to love one another. So the first posture we're going to look at stems from uh, earlier in the chapter of uh, John chapter 13. We're going to start at verse 1 and uh, read. This is part of the, the Passover dinner that they're experiencing together. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Going on in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example just uh, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, I'm sure that all of you are super familiar with that passage, and maybe you have witnessed a foot washing or been part of one at a wedding or in a youth group event or at a retreat. 
and it can be a powerful symbol pointing back to this act by Jesus. But the problem with it, when it's used as a symbol, is that we generally have fairly clean feet. We, especially if we know we're going to participate in a foot washing, we do a preemptive pre-wash because we want our feet to be clean as they're washed. And what Jesus did in that room was not some symbol that people did when they wanted to express love. It was not a symbol. It was a necessary act because of the context of their lives. And what I mean by that is in, in first century Israel, there were very few Uber drivers. Really hard to get one. And so people walked pretty much everywhere they went. They walked. And they didn't have wicking, moisture-wicking socks. Too expensive. So they walked along in leather sandals everywhere they went. And if you want to get just a slight glimpse of the aroma, the bouquet that would be coming from these sandals, find a four-year-old, put some leather boots on them without socks, and let them run around for two days. I did this on accident. Take the boots off, and after you regain consciousness, you will have just a a slight picture of why foot washing was not a grand gesture, not a big symbol. It was what the lowliest of lowly servants was required to do when people removed their shoes and entered a home so that they could just be in the same room with each other. It was the gum scraping off the bottom of the desk role of a servant. So when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, it it wasn't a grand gesture. It was seriously a humbling thing. And one of the things that creates a huge barrier for us in taking a posture of service like that is 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 really our, our fallen nature. And for each of these postures we're going to talk about, we're going to, we're going to put the posture of love, in this case the posture of service, up against the opposite of that for us is not going to be a posture of hate. It's obvious to see what hate is and to avoid hate. But there's a posture of the law is what I would call it. And if you heard Brian's sermon on the film The Tree of Life a few weeks ago, you could also call it the, the posture of nature, this posture of this fallen world. And so when we look at this posture, what we see Uh, posture of service. The posture of law declares, that's your job. We, We have a tendency, I think, in our culture inside the church, outside the church, but I think especially inside the church, we feel like our job is to teach people lessons. To make sure they understand what's right. And so if I had been in that room and watched these disciples who were about to start my church, awkwardly shuffle past the place where the towel and the water is because I'm not going to be that guy. I really want some influence in the church that's being established. I'm not going to stoop myself to the lowest position. If I'm in Jesus' place, I'm, it's object lesson time. I am going to call them out and tell them what they should be doing and Whoever seems to be cockiest at the moment, hey, you get that and you wash my feet and you wash everybody else's feet. I'm going to teach them a lesson. And I think that's our impulse naturally because we are 
You're born into the law. But how much more powerful was it that Jesus, instead of declaring that's your job, asked how he could serve and took that role and humbled himself for those around him? And for us in this room and in the church around the world, what would it look like if we felt like our call to display God's love was more important than teaching people a lesson? I think the world would look really different. That posture of service isn't about grand gestures. It's about about little things. As a college student, your roommate is super messy and every time you walk in, there's clothes everywhere, and they're there, it's their clothes, and they're messy clothes, and they're smelly clothes. You walk in, you see those clothes, and the first thing you think is, think is I've got to teach, how can I teach them a lesson about how irresponsible they're being and how uncaring they're being? This is your job. This is what's right. What happens if instead you pick up those clothes, you go wash them, you dry them, you fold them? They may not learn the lesson. (laughs) They may not. But they will have experienced the love of God through your service. For those of us that are not in dorms but in houses with families, when we come home and the chores that the other person is responsible for, the thing that the other parent was supposed to do with the kids is not done, what would it look like if instead of saying, hey, don't forget this is actually your job, I've done my job, your job, if we just did it. Maybe they would continually forget to do those things, but they would be experiencing the love of God through that posture of service. You don't see those things in the movies because they they aren't sexy and they aren't grand and they aren't huge, but it's those little acts of service that really display the type of love that God in Christ is talking about with his disciples in loving one another. So the first posture is the posture of service. After Jesus and his disciples had the Passover supper and left that place, they went on a walk and they ended up in a garden. Uh, We know it as the Garden of Gethsemane. And basically for the evening, Jesus prayed and the disciples slept. Uh, They were supposed to be praying with him, but they were just really tired, carb-heavy, Passover meal. And so Jesus is praying, and he's not just praying like we think of praying. He is travailing with the Father. He is begging the Father to come up with another way. There's got to be another way for this to play out. I know that I'm about to die. Please take this cup from me. Figure out another way. In the Gospel of Luke, and Luke is the physician of the, of the followers of Christ, Luke said that he was sweating as if it was large drops of blood. He was just sweating, pouring sweat, and travailing before God, the Father. But he ended his prayer with, but not my will, but yours be done. He took a posture of submission. He took a posture of submission. And again, for us, when we think about submission, our natural tendency, the posture of the law, the posture of nature, declares, this is my life. 
is my life. We do not want to submit. It is not our nature to submit. It's our nature to declare this is my life. And there's a lot of ways we could talk about what it looks like to submit and to be a submissive person. But I'd just like to talk briefly about what it looks like to submit our days to the Father. To submit our days to the Father. I think there's two really easy ways to look at this. One is in our calendar days. Most of us today have either an e-calendar or a, a, a teal and gold paper calendar that we follow and that dictates our life. We have things scheduled out. We have things ordered out. This is what I'm going to do today. And inevitably, just about every day, if you have kids, definitely every day, there are things that occur that are not in your calendar. And for me, at least, when things occur that are not on my calendar, I typically view them as inconveniences. Because I have tasks that I need to get done today, and something outside of that is a barrier to what I need to get done for my job, for my family, for my whatever. So they're inconveniences. And the problem with that is that you can't love an inconvenience. It is impossible to love an inconvenience. Because an inconvenience is an object. An inconvenience isn't a person. An inconvenience is an object. So what would it look like, instead of declaring, this is my life, inconvenience is out of the way. I do what I, am, I have on my calendar, and that's it. When we're interrupted by family members, when we're interrupted by friends, when we're interrupted by strangers, what if we saw it as an opportunity to submit our calendars to the Father who orders our days, who orders our steps, and who may be wanting to display His love through an encounter that is not scheduled for 3.15 p.m. this afternoon? What would that look like? I might not get my stuff done. And somebody that doesn't know about the submission I had at 3.15 p.m. might tell me that I am falling short because I'm not getting my stuff done, and they don't know why. What's more important? The declaration, this is my life, or is it the posture of submission? Another and much more difficult way we submit our days to the Lord is the really big things that happen in our days. When one of our parents is diagnosed with cancer and their health just plummets in a month and you find yourself on your knees begging God to take the cup, there must be another way, some other way, sweating profusely. What happens when we end that prayer with submit. This afternoon, we're going to get a call about whether or not our child has learning disorder. It's going to rock their world and rock our world. And we find ourselves on our knees in prayer, begging, take this cup. There's got to be another way. There is another way. Just make it another way. 
And at the end of that prayer, we submit. Knowing that there, there is no safety, there's no security in what God is doing or allowing to be done in our lives. There's only safety and security in who he is. And so in the allowing inconveniences become God-ordained moments, God's love is displayed in someone being treated as a human and not as an inconvenience. They experience that in the moment. And in these heavy situations, God's love is experienced as people look at you as you're going through something that should destroy you. And they see you certainly travailing before God and heavy, but at peace because it's not about your circumstances, but the one who is love. Posture of submission. Not easy. Not easy. But beautiful. The last posture is a posture that Jesus really symbolized with his entire incarnation. As he was in the perfect eternal community of the Trinity. He stepped out of that to be born into the broken world that he created. Live a life here in cumbersome humanity and submit to death on the cross. It's a posture of sacrifice. Posture of sacrifice. And again, when we think about our nature being born into the law, the posture of the law says that I deserve. I deserve. I deserve good things. I deserve a day off. I deserve a nap. I have three small children. I deserve a nap. I deserve a vacation. I deserve a raise. I deserve a new car. I deserve a job. I deserve. That's the posture of the law. Posture of nature. Posture of sacrifice. Is how, how can I sacrifice? And when we look at the grand sacrifice of Christ on the cross... Um, it's, it's really hard to translate that to our life because we rarely get the opportunity to die for the sins of the world. It's probably not going to be presented to you as an option. And it's those really grand gestures that we see most often in Hollywood, like, man, that's love. They held a boombox, which is that's a giant iPod, for those of you that are in college. <laughs> I, I went over and I held a giant I held a boombox, and this is the perfect song. And the reality is that real sacrifice, the type of sacrifice that really communicates the type of love that Jesus is talking about, is typically not in the grand gestures. It's in the unseen gestures. When our middle child, Selah, was nine months old and had a surgery to reconstruct her skull, it looked like a group of college students who live off of ramen noodles going around and collecting a huge stack of $1 bills, over $1,000, to help us pay our medical bills. To this day, I don't know who gave that money. But it, it didn't matter who gave the money. We experienced the love of God through a small sacrifice of a lot of people. It's incredibly powerful, and those people will never get the credit. But they displayed the love of God. It looks like Bryant Minton, who 
deserves a day off, tossing his chainsaw in the back of his truck and going to spend the weekend helping disaster victims. He deserves a day off, man. If anybody deserves a day off, Bryant deserves a day off. But he doesn't do it grudgingly. He does it joyfully. And the people he is serving sees that sacrifice and experiences the true and real love of God. Because instead of saying, I deserve, seeks to sacrifice. And we can see a theme in all three of these postures, the posture of service and the posture of submission and the posture of sacrifice. They are all the exact opposite of self-actualization. They're the giving up of self. And the world would say, man, if you, if you lean too far into that, you're going to lose yourself. And you're going to become codependent. And you're going to become all these things. And there's, there's certainly traps there. But our, our tendency is not to fall into that trap nearly as much as it is to make it all about ourselves. The postures of love that Christ calls us to are those of giving ourselves up. So how do we do that? How can we possibly, with all of the things that we deserve and the things that are not my job, and things that I am entitled to, how do we live every day in these postures? How do we get up at 3 a.m. with our kids instead of nudging our spouse? How do we clean our room for our roommate day in and day out? And I'd like to illustrate the answer to that question with one more video clip from a Disney movie called Pollyanna. Has anybody seen the movie Pollyanna? A few of you. Awesome movie. Super briefly, Pollyanna is about an orphan uh, who goes to live in this community that's very stodgy, living in all the postures of the law. Not joyful, not giving, very judgmental. It's just a sad scene. And Pollyanna is just full of joy and life. And the scene I'm going to show you is from... Uh, a, a time when she goes into a hermit's home in, um, in the movie and is interacting with a hermit. So if we can, my clicker's not working that great, so if we can do that. You get a little more volume. So a man can't call his home his own anymore. And where do you think it comes from? So this is a piece of glass. Explain it to him, Mr. Pendergast. I've got work to do. Don't you know anything about refracted light there, boy? It's the sunlight coming through. I'll do the explaining if you don't mind, little Miss Know-It-All. Now, boy, you see here the... Don't they ever cut your hair in that darn orphanage? I like it the way it is. Look at you. So much hair, you look like you're wearing a coonskin cap. Let me go, will you? <laughs> anyway, about the refracted light. Oh, yes. Now, pay attention, boy. You see the shape of this crystal? That is a prism. The light is stripped by that angle. That refracts the ray, splits the colors, diffuses them at an oblique angle, and bends it out into a dispersed color band. You understand? What he means is, the sun comes through here and paints a rainbow, you see? Oh, I understand. Can I try it once, please? Go ahead, but don't break anything. Oh, no, I've got to 
got work to do. We have some wire or a piece of thread. We could string them up across the whole window. Oh, we could, could we? Do you kids think I've got nothing better to do than to play silly games? Well, don't stand there looking at me like that. There's string in that box over there. Go and get it. Go and get it. Oh, dear. Then Disney movies for instance. A prism. Doesn't take batteries, doesn't take electricity, doesn't have an instruction manual. Doesn't work. Doesn't put forth effort. A prism either does nothing, sits in a drawer on a table, or if it's put in the presence of light, it refracts it and allows us to see the light in a totally different way. And it's not that the prism adds to the light or changes the light or anything like that. It, the light is the light, but as the light passes through the prism, it allows us to see the light that we didn't see before that was always there. And God created us in his image as prisms. Not through effort, not through hard work, not through a particular process, but by being in his presence. If we are simply in his presence, his love, which all love is his love, comes to us and through service and through submission and through sacrifice, his love refracts through us in a way that makes it visible to the world around us in a way that it wasn't before. That's why they will know us by our love. Because God's love is everywhere in His creation. But because of the brokenness of sin, it's often invisible. And for whatever reason, He chose that He would display His love through His Son and through His image bearers as His love passes through us and refracts the world around us. So as we go from this place, our call is not to work harder at serving, it's not to work harder at submitting or work harder at sacrificing. It's to order our lives in such a way that we can live in His presence. At the back table, along with all the other flyers, there's going to be a stack of papers that just have a couple of suggestions. If your, your question is, what does it look like to live in his presence? Just a, a few things to try out. I encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you don't expect me to figure out and, and use my willpower to give up my rights every day and to 
serve others every day and to submit to things that I don't want or like every day. I thank you that instead your call is to just be with you. And I confess that so often I let everything else crowd that out. So for all of us, I ask that you would anchor us in your presence and rivet us with your love and let our highest call not to be to teach others lessons, but to display your love that transforms. Amen.